Well, it's good to be back in St. Field. Thank you for coming out these uh, meetings, and uh, we trust that God will continue to bless. Could you turn with me tonight to 2 Samuel chapter 6, please? And while you're looking for the place I left out on the table, I got permission. Uh, I'm speaking at Northfield this July, uh, down in Newcastle, in the Marquee. Uh, and I'm the speaker in the mornings for the ministry, and a fellow Oliver McAllister. If you're free, if you're down that way, if you know people that are free to come, we'd love to see them. That's a personal invitation from me to you. Uh, thank you for coming. I think this is the first time they've had a speaker uh, from outside the Brethren fold. So they're not just sure how that will go. So uh, uh, if you can help uh, boost the numbers, we would appreciate that. 2 Samuel chapter 6, reading from verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from the Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was in Gibeah, and Usa and uh, Aeo, uh, the sons of Abinadab, drave the, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at uh, Gilead, uh, accompaniment, accompanying the ark of God, and Io went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on trimbles and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon threshing for, Usa put forth his hand to the ark of God and took the hold of it for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Usa. And God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Usa, and he called the name of the place Perausa to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him, unto the, unto the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so when they, when they that bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. 
And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the woman as men, to every one a piece of bread, sorry, a cake of bread, and a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. And amen. Let's pray together. Father, your word, of course, is precious. It is inerrant. It is true. And Father, as we open these pages again, we pray that we might have receptive hearts ready to absorb the word in such a way that we might never be the same again. May it have an impact on our thinking, on our walk, in our lifestyle, even from this day forward. Father, we commit this time to thee in the Savior's name. Amen. On the 28th of August, 1963, Martin Luther King stood in the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington and gave a speech to 250,000 civil rights supporters. And that speech has become one of the most famous speeches in history. It's called the I Have a Dream speech. It was a call to end racism in the United States. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. That's all I know. Don't ask me to quote anymore. That's my limitations. A powerful speech from Martin Luther King. In 2 Samuel 6, David has a dream, a passion that drove him. So far in our wee mini-series on David, we have seen David in the day of famine, uh, and we looked at 2 Samuel 21. David in the day of loneliness, and we looked at Psalm 142. Psalm, uh, David in the day of battle, we looked at 1 Samuel 17. Last week we looked at David in the day of harvest, and we looked at 2 Samuel 23. Tonight we come with the help of God to David in a day of worship. David in a day of worship. And there have been many definitions of worship. And you, dear folk in St. Field, will know that it is not just a way of opening or closing a service. It's not just so that things could be done decently and in order. No, it's far, far greater than that. Someone has said that worship is a heart's response to greatness. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said that worship is to be personally and hopelessly in love with God. Worship. What can we learn about worship and about David tonight? David in the day of worship. The first thing I want you to notice is David's dream. And he certainly had an amazing dream. If you want to read all about it, you'll need to read 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 7, and over to 1 Chronicles 22. David's dream was very simple. He had a longing, he had a passion to build a house for God. A place for the Ark of the Covenant that spoke of God's presence where it would rest. He saw 
he was living in a palace and yet the Ark of the Covenant was still under a canvas tent and he had this passion about building something permanent, something that would stand, something that would stand the test of time. He wanted to build a temple. David's dream was refused in Second Samuel chapter 7 because he was a man of war and had shed blood. And so instead David gathered the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and huge stones and cedar logs also that his son Solomon would be able to build it easier. But in chapter 6 that we have read, David's dream was still intact. David's dream was still that he would build a building to house the Ark of the Covenant. And you know the history. Step number one in fulfilling the dream was that Israeli, the Israeli Ark of the Covenant to bring it to Jerusalem. It was Israel's greatest national treasure. It was their most sacred possession. The ark had been captured, you will remember, way back 1 Samuel 6, captured by the Philistines. They took it into the temple of Dagon, their pagan god. And after about seven months there, God sent a plague among the Philistines. And so they returned the ark to Israel. And it had been in the home of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim for about 20 years. It had sat in his house, uh, and was treasured, no doubt, but it was just there in his home. Inside it, of course, there was the uh, golden pot of manna, uh, the food that they ate during their wilderness journeys. The stone tablets of the Ten Commandments were in there, and also Aaron's rod that budded. And David's dream was to bring this great treasure, the Ark of the Covenant that spoke of God's presence among his people to its central place in Jerusalem. I say that tonight because it is important to have a dream. It's important to have ambitions. It's important to have goals that we aim for. And I say to you unashamedly in Sainfield tonight, I am no Martin Luther King, but I have a dream. I have a dream that the gospel and the things of God might be the center of our nation once again. I have a dream that Christ might have his central place in our nation, central place in our fellowships, and the central place in our hearts. I have a dream that once again we might know something of his almighty power, his presence and his purity, among the things of God and the people of God. I have a dream. I have a dream for a day when legislation will be once again God-glorified. I have a dream that the Christian Institute will be redundant and not needed. I have a dream. And whenever he is central, why we will cope better with illness because he will be our great physician. We will deal better and easier with depression for he will be our comforter and our guide. We'll deal better with worry because he will be our wisdom and our peace. We'll deal better with weakness for he will be our source of strength. I have a dream. And it starts, of course, with one individual. And it could start in St. Field tonight. One person 
Even the speaker who, who say from this moment on, Christ is going to be central in all that they do. Just as David wanted the ark in its central place in Jerusalem, so we want Christ to be center in all that we seek to do. I, I do believe as I go around different fellowships, I do believe that somehow the things of God are getting a secondary position. In many places there is a, a social emphasis which is vitally important, but it seems to have taken precedence and seems to be taking the limelight. And so we have David's dream to have the things of God, that which spoke of God's presence, right at the center of the capital and in the center of the nation again. What a dream to have. I, I, I can identify with David in that. But then I move from David's dream to David's design. You see, it was always the design of God that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, the priestly tribe. You will find that in, in Exodus 25, and you will find that the Ark of the Covenant was not to be touched by human hands. Such was the holiness uh, and such was the importance and such was the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. No hand was to touch it. And so there was rings, gold rings on each side of the Ark through which the poles were, were, were slid. Uh, and then it was lifted and put on the shoulders of the priests. And so they carried it, those wilderness journeys. But David decided in Second Samuel 6 to break with the old traditions. He decided that this was an exciting new dawn, and with a new dawn we'll have a new vision, and we would have modern innovation. And so he decided that rather than use the old methods of the poles and carried on the shoulders of the priests, that they would build a cart driven by animals. He got the idea from the Philistines. Away back in 1 Samuel 6, Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Whenever they gave the ark back to the, the Israelites, they did so on a cart. And so David thought, well, that's a good idea. They got away with it. Maybe we'll get away with it too. And I imagine some of the older people in David's day were not happy because that's not the way we normally do things. We normally carry it on the shoulders of the priest. If it's not broken, why change it? But I also imagine that some of the younger people were delighted with the new modern approach. Tradition, you see, can seem boring. It can uh, look as if it's not going with the times. And sure, if we're going to reach a new generation and if we're going to reach the unsaved, then we have to do so in a way that they will understand. And so we innovate and we make progress could I say here, doing things in a new way can be good. Innovation can be progress. But David's design, though well intended, did not consider either the command of God or the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant. And because of that, we find that David's design, we will see, went badly wrong. In 2023, we do need people with vision. We do need people to reach a new generation, a, a generation that is media-driven. And we do need to, to change our approach in a way 
But as David learned to his cost, in pursuit of vision and innovation, we must never forget the commands of God. And we must never forget the holiness of the things of God. David maybe was trying to reach a new generation and thought of a new way of doing it. But in so doing, he broke the command of God and he failed to realize the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant. So with David's dream to have the things of God central, we have David's design, a new modern approach. We have David's disaster. Verse 6, we read that they came to Nacon's threshing floor. And the ground was uneven. The people are singing. The people are dancing. The people are playing many instruments. They're having a great celebration. The ark is coming home. It's coming home. And the unevenness of the ground unsettles the oxen and the ark becomes wobbly and rickety. And one of the drivers, Usa, reaches out his hand to steady the ark. We read in verse number 6 and number 7, and God strikes him dead on the spot. And rejoicing turns to mourning. Mourning. In an instant, all of a sudden the atmosphere changes. The song evaporates. The instruments go silent. It seems extreme. What did Usa do wrong? Well, God halted the procession for two reasons. Number one, they did not follow the design mode of transport, the divine mode given in Exodus 25. But secondly, God halted the possession because Usa was over familiar with the things of God. You see, when you read the text, you find in verse 3 that Usa was the son of Abinadab. And the ark had sat in his house, Abinadab's house, for almost 20 years. It was part of his furniture. There was the kitchen, there was the living room, and that room there has the ark of the covenant. I can imagine people coming to the door, knocking the door, and he opens the door and they say, tell me, have you the Ark of the Covenant here? Yeah, of course, come on in. <laughs> it's in the front room. Come on in, do you see it? Is this it? Is this it? That's really it? The Ark of, does it have the, the golden pots of manna? Yeah, yeah, it's inside. Does it have Aaron's rod that, but, absolutely. Does it have the stone that has the commandments of God? Absolutely, there's and for 20 years, Usa was familiar with the things of God. It was just another bit of furniture. And whenever that cart hit the rough ground, and whenever the ark started to move, when Usa touched the ark, he was showing how familiar and how casual he was with the ark of God. My dear saint of God in St. Field, could it be, could it be that we in 2023 have become over familiar and too casual with spiritual things? That was Zeus's problem. He thought, well, sure, it's only a bit of furniture. I've been used to it the last 20 years. 
I can, I can handle it. And the drive today is to be blasé and informal, to take it, have a take it or leave it attitude to the things of God. I tell you, if God was to act today as he did in 2 Samuel 6 with Usa, the graveyard would be absolutely packed, wouldn't it? If, if we got casual, if we got over familiar with spiritual things, if God struck us down, where would we stand? I'd be the first away, I promise you. We have started to do church without a sense of awe and wonder. We sing the hymns in an automatic mode without considering even the words they're so familiar with us. We relegate holiness to be optional. We have relegated God to fit into our preferred lifestyle. And it's not radical anymore. And it's not out in the limb anymore. Now you can be a Christian and the people outside, they can't really tell us from an unsaved person. We have brought it down to a level where it doesn't really mark us. You see, the point of being a Christian is not primarily to go to heaven. That is a glorious byproduct. The purpose of salvation primarily is that we might be conformed to the image of a son. Number one. You see, if salvation was just for heaven, then the moment we got saved, he would take us there. But he doesn't. Because there is a primary reason that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we might be Christ-like. Now, be careful, because some people paint a very strange picture of being Christ-like. They imagine it with a big, long face and a big Bible and, 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 and sort of black clothes. And Being Christ-like is to have a love for others the way Christ had for us. To forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. To encourage others the way Christ, by His Spirit, encourages us. Can I remind you that if we want to be Christ-like, remember, please, that Christ had His wilderness, didn't He? And so might we. Wilderness times when the enemy attacks and our backs to the wall and we don't know what way to turn. Christ had His wilderness. Christ had His Gethsemane. Oh, what a battle of Gethsemane. When he sweat as it were, great drops of blood. And the enemy was on the warpath. Christ had his Calvary. I'll tell you something else. He had his Judas, didn't he? He had his Judas. One that he thought was close, was in the inner circle, but was ready to stab him in the back. So being Christ-like doesn't say that you have a carefree existence. You can still have your wilderness. You can still have your battles. You can still have your enemies. You can still get stabbed in the back. David's dream that the things of God might be central again, not only in the nation, but in our hearts. Oh, dear saint of God, if you get nothing, nothing more from the study tonight, take that home with you. 
David had a dream. We should have a dream that Christ is central in all that we do. David's design. He decided to be modern. He decided to be inventive. He decided to do something that the world does to try and look modern. But he forgot the command of God. And he forgot the importance and the value and the preciousness of the Ark of the Covenant. And then David's disaster. My, as they made the journey and the dancing was on and the music was playing and they went over Nahor's threshing floor and the animals got a bit skittish and the ark started to shake. Uzzah put his hand out. He was showing how familiar he was with spiritual things. God struck him down. And as I prepared for tonight, I thought how many times God could have struck me down for being flippant and over-familiar with spiritual truth. David's dream, David's design, David's disaster. Notice, please, David's dance. Verse 14. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet and as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael's, Michael Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw David, King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Let's go back a wee bit. For three months after the incident with Uzzah, they stopped the procession, and for three months the ark rested in the home of Obed-Edom. And during those three months... God very generously blessed the home of Obed-Edom. Of course he will. God always blesses a home where the things of God are central. And whenever the things of God were central in Obed-Edom's home, then God blesses that home. He does the same today. When God is in that central position, then there is a blessing that is attached to that. And David decides to try again, but this time... David does his homework and follows the strict, clear instructions of the Mosaic law. All of a sudden, they get the poles back out. They get the priests organized, and they put the poles through the rings, and it is carried by the priests. They went further. We read that after six steps, verse 13, they stopped to make a sacrifice. They sacrificed a bull and fatted calf. And finally, they reached the city of Jerusalem. David's dream was completed, at least in part. All of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant was back in the the capital of Israel. And the weight and the significance of the occasion strikes the heart of David. The return of God's presence to the nation's capital The moment is overwhelming. Some are weeping, some are rejoicing, some are singing. I imagine some are applauding. And David forgets the dignity of being a king. And he started to dance before the Lord. It says in verse 14, dancing with all his might. Now you can interpret that whatever way you wish. But he certainly was enthusiastic. 
and he dances before the Lord. Now please, before you have me run out of St. Field, can I remind you that this is not in the context of a service, nor is it in the context of a sacrifice. This is in the context of celebration. That's the context in which David danced before the Lord. This was not to put on a show. This was not to attract attention. This was an outward expression of a deep passion for God's presence. And in an act of unashamed devotion, David worshipped with all his heart. We read verse 16 where Michael, Saul's daughter, his wife, despised his display of extravagant love for the Lord. Now I promise you in St. Field that if you display an extravagant love for God, there will always be people, maybe your wife or husband, as it was in David's case, but there will always be someone to dampen your enthusiasm. I think of John chapter 12. Do you remember Mary? Mary came just before the crucifixion and they're having a meal in that wee house in Bethany. If you go to Israel today, you'll not go to Bethany. They, they would stone the coach if you went to Bethany. It's a Muslim enclave at the moment. I remember in the early days going out, we were able to go to Bethany and went into some of the wee homes. And somewhere there, the Lord loved to meet with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in John 12, they're meeting for a meal. And the crowd is gathered in and it tells us that they're there to see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, as much as it was to see the Savior. You see, there's an impact in, in a life that's born again. Judas, or Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And the crowd gather. Because there's something about a testimony. There's something about a, a life that has been redeemed and come to life again. New life in Christ that attracts a crowd. Mary goes into her wee bedroom. I don't know whether she left a few floorboards or maybe hidden behind a wee stone crevice somewhere. But she brings out her pound of nard ointment. Spike nard. Spike just means pure. We are told it was very costly. And she comes with her little box. She breaks the seal. And she comes and she gets down at the feet of Jesus. And she anoints his feet. Remember the story? And the fragrance, it says. The fragrance filled the house. You know, I often think of this wee box of Mary's. I imagine that this was her diary if Mr. Wright came. <laughs> Always hoping that he'd arrive on the scene, Mr. Wright, and he'd propose. And she would have her diary. It was hidden under the floorboards. It was behind the wee crevice. There was her box, her box of spikenard, very costly. It was her marriage diary. If Mr. Wright didn't come, it was her capital. It was her investment. It was her savings. So that life would be okay. She'd manage. Because she had her little savings. She had her spike nard. Very costly. Or if what happened to 
Lazarus happened to her and she was to lose her life. My, the burial cost, oh, it was in the wee box. If it happens to me, there's where it is. You sell that, that'll cover my expenses. You see, you see, Mary's life was wrapped up in this wee box. This was Mary's future. This was her hopes. This was her dreams. This was her, this was all she had. Mary goes, she breaks the seal, and she pours out her future at the feet of the Savior. And Judah says, why was that not sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Huh? Extravagant love always meets opposition. Extravagant love is always, there's always someone to pour cold water on it. And there was Mary. And incidentally, this is not my subject tonight, but Mary washed her feet or wiped his feet with her hair. Did you notice that? You see, you don't get this in our culture, but back in the day in, in, in Israel, back in the Lord's day, a woman would not unbraid her hair in public. That was a sign of a fallen woman. No, 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 no. That, the unbraiding of the hair was something you did for your husband in the bedroom. Nobody else would see it. But Mary has got past tradition and past what people will think about her and past what people might say about her. And she takes her wee box of her future, breaks the seal and pours it out at the Savior's feet. Why? Because she had sat at his feet and learnt about the cross. Remember? Mary, Martha was encumbered with much busyness, trying to make sure the pavlova was the right height and the sausage rolls were the right temperature and the, and the volivants were just right. She, she was all caught up with the catering. And she says, Lord, tell Mary to come and help me. And the Lord says, no, no. Mary had chosen the best part, the better part. You see, Mary was a Martha before she chose to be a Mary. Mary was with a catering and all as well. But somewhere she chose. She made a conscious decision. I'm not worried about the catering. I'm not worried about the sausage rolls. I'm not worried about the pavlova. I'm going to sit at the master's feet. And I'm going to learn from the master. And she learned he was going to Calvary. And she learned about how he would be betrayed. And, and, and she learned how he would be crucified. And they would take his body and dump it at Gehenna. And here she comes in John 12. And she says, I'm going to make sure my master is anointed and given a proper burial. The Lord says, against the day of my bearing has she done this. And Martha, uh, sorry, Mary was making sure that the Lord was treated with the respect and with the love. But Judas complained. And here David is dancing before the Lord in an extreme and a, 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 a sense of passion and love and exuberance, unashamed devotion. David worshipped with all his heart. It didn't please Michael, but it pleased the Lord. Please the Lord. Now we want to maintain a spiritual 
scriptural balance in our worship. Of course we do. But listen to me. That is no excuse for half-hearted lukewarmness. My, we need in our day believers to be excited about the things of God. And say like the hymn writer, If ever I love thee, my Jesus tis nigh. Don't get over familiar with the things of God. David, in a day of worship, David's dream that the things of God might be central. Oh, can I say to you, dear saint of God, oh, lift the veil if veil there be. Make Christ central tomorrow. When you meet on a Sunday, whatever you seek to do, that, that he might be the center of all your... Watch the design. Make sure you don't forget the command of God or the holiness of the things of God. Disaster. Being over-familiar with spiritual things. Usa. It cost him his life because he got over-familiar and felt he could just reach out and touch the ark, which was Forbidden. He should have known it. But God struck him down. And his dance. Oh, that extravagance. Not only David, but Mary. Not only Mary, but John, who was so close to the Master. And so many others. That extravagant love for the one who saved us. Next week, We'll look at David in a day of reflection. I've gone over my time. Let's pray together. Eternal God, we thank you for this little incident from 1 Samuel chapter 6. Father, we think of David's dream. What a dream to have, that the things of God might be central. Father, we pray that in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our fellowships, that, Father, Christ might have that central position. Someone has said, if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And, Father, we pray that we might have that dream. Father, we pray that in the design, Father, help us to learn to treat the things of God, the laws of God, with importance, that that we'll not get casual, and that, Father, that we might remember the things of God are holy and reverent, Father, we pray that we may not have a disaster when we treat the things of God so casually like Usa and David's dance. Oh, that passion, that joy, forgetting the, the role of a king, but just that love for, them, for the Savior, that love for Jehovah. Father, may we have such a love and such a passion that even tonight we'll bring our little box of spikenard Open the box, pour it out at your feet, and say, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Bless as we go to prayer, and undertake for each one for Christ's sake. Amen.